0: Yeah. <music>
1: Everything is fine. You've got your good pods, and we've got mine. I'm young, dumb, and full of creamed corn, Matisse Van Rossum. I'm your resident pencil neck, Ben Sheets, and in heaven there is no beer,
0: and that's why we
2: drink it here.
0: And I'm everybody's favorite bedside bonsai, Cleveland Mosier. And together, we are America's finest
1: podcast, the pod people. And we're back at you with another review. And this week, it was my choice. And because I've been thinking about going somewhere that's nicer than this reality, somewhere that is fine, I decided, hey, let's watch Eraserhead. (laughs) And (laughs) fine it was. (laughs) And uh, for those unaware, Eraserhead is the 1977 feature length debut of David Lynch, uh, written and directed, starring Jack Nance, Charlotte Stewart, Judith Roberts, and Laurel Near. And the movie is about. The anxiety of
2: parenthood.
1: Yes. Yep. Among other things. Feeling it's... weird and
0: dis- disassociated. <laughs>
1: On that subject, Cleveland, this was your first time ever seeing Eraserhead, right? Yes it, was. yes, it was. Well, before we dive into the nitty-gritty, I would love to hear some of your initial impressions. How did your first viewing
0: of Eraserhead strike you? I adored it. I loved this movie. Man, I, I'm, I was actually really surprised to hear that, that's, that this was David Lynch's first film.
1: That's oh, right. Oh,
2: Christ, He spent like three or four years making... Five years. Five years, years,
0: five years making this movie. It shows. It's such a clean film for as gross as it is. Like, it's it's so well thought out uh, and consistent. Consistently terrifying and nebulous. I've been thinking a lot this week, uh, as we watched it a few days ago. I've been thinking a lot about what it was about this film that I loved so much that I didn't love about something like The Greasy Strangler or, you know, some several other films. I know I know, I keep bringing up that damned movie. You want to talk about House Suit? Um, I was going to actually bring suit. up
1: The Greasy Strangler in context of
0: this film as well, but uh,
1: <laughs> please continue. I, I want to hear what differentiates Eraserhead from The Greasy Strangler for you.
0: I have some nice answers. The key one is The Greasy Strangler as campy and goofy and weird as it is still feels relatively grounded in reality even with the bad acting we're we're in an understandable environment where we're seeing things we know and don't like and I don't like that uh, whereas with a racer head I'm seeing things that I don't understand and uh, and that are made to make me feel uncomfortable and because of that I'm I'm left so searching for the root of them, their their meaning, or, like, uh, in their non-meaning, I'm, I'm searching for—it leaves me unraveling the puzzle. And also, because it's so nebulous and because it's so strange, it's puerile fantasy. It's something that I can distance myself between, whereas, like, some of those other, like, discomfort films are just a little bit too close for comfort. You know, like for for discomfort, I should say, like too close for discomfort, <laughs> is a good way to put it. Eraserhead is fantasy, and because of that, I can appreciate the workmanship of discomfort. I can I can enjoy the things about it that are making me uncomfortable, and I can laugh at them. You know, and it's at gunpoint, like it's still like there's there's a lot. Of, it's tension fueled laughter, but I don't mind being held there. I suppose
2: that's interesting because i would agree somewhat with that but i think with a lot of david lynch's stuff after this you know it's much more closer to reality but oftentimes it's just as strange and i think it's just as effective regardless of how nebulous it is on top of that you know i i've seen this movie probably a dozen times at this point same, and i feel like every time i see it it feels like the story itself and what it's trying to say is more and more straightforward. Maybe that's just because, you know, I've had plenty of time to think about
0: what everything is trying to say and what's going on, but... Well, I think the narrative itself is very straightforward, cut and dry, beautifully simple, even. You can break down the core components of what happens in this film in a couple sentences.
1: But would, uh, would y'all be surprised to learn that the script for Eraserhead was only 22 pages? I wouldn't be. Despite the fact that the film is 90 minutes?
0: Right. And that is sort of, I think, what I mean when I say nebulous, is that so much of the film, uh, or so many of the events aren't necessarily about... Oh, God, how do I phrase this? So, <laughs> so much of what we see is visual metaphor. It's not what's actually happening, quote. It's, you know, us cycling back and, you know, catching on, like, the broader themes and the metaphors of what's actually happening um, before we dial back in. And even when we dial back in, it's still, like, weird and, you know, feels like like German expressionism. Even, like, the non-dream-sequency stuff is, is obscure and weird.
1: Yeah, well, I would say the entire film plays like a dream. Just in general, the whole thing is like one big
0: dream sequence. Yeah, Um, the the dream sequences are really dreams within dreams, you know, at that point. Mm -hmm.
1: David Lynch, of course, a surrealist, maybe the most famous, maybe most mainstream American surrealist filmmaker. Um, And uh, while Ben brings up a good point that, like, Lynch's later stuff is more grounded in reality and dreams intercede I would say that like something like Eraserhead, the whole thing feels like a dream Hmm. and it turns a lot of people off, Uh, it's very slow it's very weird but that's what I love about it so much is because it plays out like a dream. And when you're dreaming, you don't question the logic of the dream. You don't understand it at the time, but you accept it blindly. Right, you
0: can just buckle in and enjoy the ride.
1: I, I think David Lynch does a great job,
2: you know, emphasizing just buckling in. Yeah. And going in for the ride with a lot of visual gags in the movie. Yes. For example, you know, when Henry goes to the family's house for uh, for dinner mm-hmm. but in the background there's this really gross sounding noise and suckling. Yeah, I thought it was rats. And, and you think it's just like weird uh, esoteric sound uh, because the whole film, you know uh, we'll talk about this more I'm sure, but the soundscape of this film is incredible. Yeah. But then you uh, you know, you get a cut to uh, what the sound is actually coming from and it turns out to be diegetic
0: sound it's you know a dog being
1: with s- a litter of puppies yeah. yeah it has
0: such a positive association like if we were to just you were just to show someone the image of that they'd say oh that's really sweet and wonderful but um, the sound makes it yeah and hearing gross. the sound first like it well it it takes the sacred elements of a litter of puppies and it makes it profane by giving us these horrible sounds first so you hear the sound you go ugh, what is that Ugh, it's a litter of puppies! Oh, just the worst. And yeah, there's a there's a perversion there. It's fucking cool. It's it's a neat it's a neat move.
2: You have another case of that a little bit later when the the girlfriend is leaving Henry's apartment because she can't stand all the crying and mm. she's pushing against the bed frame over and over. <laughs> I love and that. it's very absurd repetition. Yeah. It goes on for a really long time. And finally. She uh pulls out a big
0: suitcase from under the bed but it's not even that big for like how long she was pushing up against the bed which I love there's no reason for her to be like pulling against it like that like that many times it's it's something that that you you'd see like uh, a lunatic do you know like someone you know who has like a like a tick and they just keep repeating themselves and she just kind of keeps like repeatedly pulling it out from under the bed I think
1: I think that's one of the fingerprints that you see in something like the greasy Strangler as difficult as that movie was for me to watch yeah, I, think right, I think that they the filmmakers were 100% influenced by lynch and this movie too i think specifically like that endlessly repeated thing of like trying to pull the the, the suitcase out from under the bed or uh, like at the dinner table when like the the little chicken is like spewing blood and and uh, his girlfriend's mother is like having like a weird kind of sexual seizure almost being constantly berated with this like bizarre uh uh repetition that is funny at sometimes and not funny at other times. The idea that Lynch is trying to
2: imply with that is don't sweat trying to figure out every symbolic, metaphorical meaning in every little detail. Just buckle in for the ride. It'll make sense eventually. Well,
1: Lynch has famously, for his entire life, refused to answer questions about this movie because he doesn't want there to be an explicit answer for what it's about or what you're supposed to take from individual scenes and stuff. He wants people to get what they get out of it and that what his intention was going into it doesn't matter. Lynch is, is a very enigmatic personality in general but i think that that kind of like mystique around this movie in particular where he's been much more explicit about other films he's made it's like there's there's really something special about this movie because of that
2: well and that's one of those things where it could be a total cop out with a lesser director yeah um you know but i think this movie as abstract as it can get at times it isn't terribly ambiguous like it seems pretty clear what everything is going for in terms of the symbolic meaning a great example of that is the first sequence we see going through space and you see jack uh jack nance henry floating and weird almost sperm like things
1: alien sperm yeah Superimposed coming out of his mouth yeah. and being, like, released into the universe. Um, and uh, there's the
2: man pulling levers. The man in the planet. Yep. You know, that's the idea of conception. The The man with the levers is God, Yeah. essentially, and the, the pulling sperm... Pulling the, the machine. Yep, and the sperm, you know, hits the planet and causes the drastic measures that unfold the rest of the story
1: yeah um a lot of folks have described this film as an adolescent's fear of responsibility and parenthood i would agree with that reading that's the one that makes the most sense to me so many things in this movie you know point towards that and are very
2: fruitful when reading that interpretation uh, Absolutely. One of the very apparent details in that is how this world is super industrial and dystopian almost. You know, it's huge
1: factories, you know, mounds of dirt. An ambient drone that accompanies the entire film. Pipes, the sound design is incredible. Pipes and tubing
2: everywhere. Yeah. And uh, the whole idea of that is how could you bring a child into... A world that's decaying in face of ecological destruction, dystopia. That's very poignant. Yeah, of this world. You know, it yeah. feels very relevant.
1: Well, and, you know, uh, Henry uh, has. An ex-girlfriend, you know, contact him out of the blue and invite him to dinner. And, you know, there's the very real fears of, like, meeting a significant other's parents and being interrogated by them. Mary's mother, like, straight up, uh, asks Henry in the hallway, like, did you and Mary have sex? Which, like, oh my god. <laughs> every every dude's nightmare being asked that at their girlfriend's house. Then being saddled with this monstrous and deformed baby and being forced to try to take care of it. Henry's on vacation, man. He, this is his time off. And that's why... I think in many ways Eraserhead is the ultimate dude's rock movie. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Because Excellent. When it comes down to it, it's really about how all these bitches are coming to, <laughs> to Henry and forcing him to be responsible and be an adult and take care of a baby when really he just wants to fuck the girl across the hall. And you know what? I think if Henry wants, he should be able to do that. God damn it. (laughs) Well, that is a take. (laughs) Satire, satire. I feel the need to say
0: that because everything, everybody takes everything (laughs) on the internet so seriously. (laughs) I think that there is uh, much to that. And having the hindsight of finishing the film uh, for the first time, I largely agree. While I was watching the movie, I did have one other take. Um, and not, not a differing take, but one that's compounded with that. So like the, the themes that we've already explained are still literally there in this no take. wrong answers with this movie. <laughs> True that. In the moment I was reading so much of the film as a play on perception, we're essentially seeing the world through the eyes of someone unstable being our protagonist the reality we are seeing is the one that he perceives so when the parents are asking stuff like you know like did you two have sex they're not actually asking that that's him perceiving that that's him sitting sitting at a completely normal house and getting a look from the mother that he reads as that because like What's the, the, the fucking politically correct word to use? Um, uh, <laughs> Great question. Uh, uh, what, schizoid tendencies? No! No! Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> no uh, insert politically correct term here, but, but people with with mental uh, illness you know like like misinterpreting you know information like I mean in some cases being schizophrenic or whatever and and, and hearing your, your own inner monologue sort of fueling the the conversation you know that the other people aren't privy to uh, and you you having sort of a conversation with yourself as opposed to you know what the conversation that actually that's actually occurring. You know, uh, it's it's often stereotyped as, like, the, the crazy person on the street who's, you know, like, like why are you looking at me like that? You think I'm stupid or something. You know, when the person's like, no, I, I don't at all. That idea. I thought we were seeing the world from a person like that's perspective. And so whenever those events were occurring, they weren't actually occurring that way, just as how he saw them. Um, so that, that, ge- that allows for essentially all of the visual metaphors to to function in a tangible world it allows for the dreams to be interpreted the way they are any any visual metaphor is just the way he's processing data i didn't see the man pulling the levers as god i saw that as his inner mind who's really running the machine upstairs you know and just the upstairs wasn't two the machine reality exclusive the machine of his mind and i agree i i, I think i think so that's ...part of the beauty of the vagueness, um, even with there being direct intent... We can read that, that David Lynch had intent with everything he did because each aspect of the film, whether it's like the weird bedside plant or the... the
1: Yeah, and the loose pile of dirt. Um, There's so much the, loose dirt in Pine Strong the, in this movie. The
0: bleeding chicken. Like, all those things are so front and center because this film is so largely, like, minimalistic. Like, the sets are always, like, very clearly sets and constructed in that same, like, German expressionist sort of way. Mm-hmm. and And so intent is on everything because it's so sparse, generally. We know that there was some reason to put that there. And often, I think that the reason is just to make you feel unsettled, but it's done with such fantastic utility, like, uh, always. I'm I'm just going to keep hark- harking back to the, the weird bedside plant. Like, that That really—that was one of the, the things that really caught me, like, because it's, it's just— just so perfectly wrong
1: yeah i uh i don't know if you noticed too but framed behind the bedside plant is a small photograph of a nuclear explosion a mushroom cloud um which i think there's uh plenty of ways to interpret that detail like is this perhaps a a post-apocalypse kind of scenario you know or is that meant to represent like the the destruction in his psyche, you know, being forced on him through like all of a sudden this responsibility. And I think the idea of like the man in the planet being like his his mind or like the man in charge or whatever is is an interesting idea because like the film ends with like kind of an annihilation uh, which it, if you use that reading could be you know the 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 last remnants of his sanity breaking yep. the annihilation of of his of his subconscious cuz like the we see the the man on the planet with the levers breaking and sparking and then it all just kind of whites out you know yeah and like um,
0: killing Spoilers for the end of Eraserhead. Yeah, yeah. For um, uh, a <laughs> fucking 40-something-year-old I... <laughs> movie now. Um, uh, and I, I'll say, if you haven't seen it, I was glad it wasn't spoiled for me. There's a lot of tension built up around, I think, how the, 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 the film climaxes. Yeah. So, forewarnings, for real, though. Killing the monster baby doesn't kill God, right? Like, when the machine starts sparking and, like, the guy's face is kind of melting and shit. That's why I like that read, exactly. Mm-hmm. Because that translates... For me, like that, that translates as his like his inner mind, you know. Like that's that's the moment when like he he hits total instability and would likely need to be committed.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, I can see that for sure. Well,
1: like the baby is is representative of everything that's wrong in his life. Like this whole situation, and it's like he especially because, like, the mother is negligent, too, and keeps leaving because she can't stand the crying, to have him, like, attack the baby at the end and, like, try to destroy this symbol of, like, what has ruined his fucking vacation. <laughs> you know? It, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it leads to that breaking point, that uh, that annihilation. I think that's an interesting read, one that I have not so much subscribed to before but I can get down with it
0: nice and again too I think that's a read <laughs>
1: yeah it's... there's
0: there's no there's no right or wrong answers right um, like that's the beauty of allegory I think uh, in this circumstance you can look at and like an Alphonse Muka and say okay this is this this piece is an allegory of spring you know and these flowers represent springtime and these these symbols you know represent fertility and springtime in his work uh in the same way that like the the bedside plant or the atom bomb photograph uh you know can can represent like life and unease and death you know and like endings as well like there's we we all know it's built around like the allegory in this case I would say like instead of like a uh, an allegory of spring like Eraserhead is an allegory of discomfort like <laughs> it's, everything in in the film is designed to to feel wrong you know like it, it's wrong it's alien something is something is always off the the punchline is something is wrong and we're just trying to figure out what it is which is great because the song uh, is everything is fine. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's an implication that somewhere other than where you are right now, in heaven, everything is fine
0: Yes Right here It's a very good point
1: It's not fine everything sucks here. And that's why I think he has that obsession with, like, staring into the radiator and this weird, like, cherub-cheeked woman in the radiator who sings that song is that, like, he's pining for
0: heaven where everything is fine. I want to make sure that I heard the lyrics right. But at the refrain, she says, the first time she says, you've got yours and I've got mine. But the second time, does she say, I've got yours and I've got mine? It's I, uh, I think it's you've got your good things and you've got, and got your you good, good things, things,
1: things and I've got, got mine. mine. And then the second time it's you've got your good things and you've got mine.
0: Oh, is that it? Yeah, okay. It changes if I remember correctly, and that could say it's a
1: yeah, kind of a- yeah, that's the difference. The first time it's I've got mine and the second time you've got mine. That plays in perfectly with the ending after like the destruction of the planet and whatever and the fade to white, we then see henry in a all-white space embracing the woman in the radiator and then cut to to credit so somehow through the destruction that he wreaks at the end that he has in some way transcended to a place where everything and, is fine. And what better and way I wish
0: I could too, man. Well, but see here's the thing though, someone who has lost their sense of reality to the degree where they have to be committed, you know, can, can achieve bliss. You know, it's that I think it's that same idea where it's like he's he's achieved heaven by checking out of reality. His brain is shut off, you know, and he's Bliss he's through just, oblivion. Exactly. That's not a heaven that I want personally yeah that's you don't sort of... want to be with the lady in the radiator no she's got weird cheeks not to judge you not to body Man, shame body shame but uh yeah. little little bit with the cheeks <laughs> um, what weird makeup what a great choice because you can't tell if they're like cheeks but there's like they're kind of hairy
1: no I, I think it's paper mache so they're kind of like textured yeah kind of it, it's uh, a really
0: unfortunate texture and in, in all the best ways.
1: It's great. Yeah, I love the I love the lady in the radiator. I love that uh... The first time we see her in that scene with just like the the fats Waller organ music <laughs> and just like the little spermy things falling from the sky onto the stage and she's just kind of like walking around stepping on them. Oh yeah, which is like her destroying preemptively all of, like the possibilities of further conception. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which further. Is, which like is like so clearly that? in so, like, in
0: heaven like like in other words yeah. like get rid of the child and like you can. And you can find right. heaven.
2: We, I, I think it's so great that we we're introduced to her with that because at the end, it feels like once, you know, he's killed the baby, he's gone with her. Right, you exactly. Know, and she kills future life and keeps it from happening. Right. Uh, and on on that note, too, like, I, I think the lever is being broken. Where at the beginning, you know, the levers being pulled was bringing upon life, uh, the levers being destroyed, you know, very much can symbolize the destruction of life. You know, yeah, break and- the
1: break the machine that creates life. So, mm-hmm. because I mean, ultimately, heaven is just where you don't have any responsibilities, no bitch girlfriend, no whiny baby. You know, you can you just get to uh, hug a lady with big cheeks, make those cheeks clap. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh yes, and <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh man! Uh, oh, by the way, I did look it up, and uh, you were correct. T it is uh, the first time is uh, everything is fine. You've got your good thing, and I've got mine." And then the I second time is everything is I've fine. I've seen this movie many times. You've got times. your good thing, yeah. and you've got mine. Yeah, we've <laughs> we've right. both collectively seen this movie yes. probably like two dozen
2: the, times. Yeah, or so. yeah, for sure. One thing I do wanna expand upon a little bit is we we've been talking about kind of interpretations of what's going on. Themes and themes. And I think that's a really important word is themes. I think this movie is a really interesting exploration of open endedness versus ambiguity. Because I think this movie is very open-ended in that yes. uh, there are very direct themes, you know, the anxieties of childhood, the subjective lens, and subjective experiences. Being horny experiences. for your neighbor. Yes. Uh, but it's not ambiguous. It's open-ended to what these things mean. But it's not unclear. You you pick up what I'm putting down there? I I am.
0: Uh, I think one element that helps with that is that same idea of intent and sort of giving the, the viewer a call to action. Every time something is placed in front of you, it is placed in front of you with the goal of inspiring you to try and understand it.
1: Yeah, like David Lynch has, in all of his stuff incredibly meticulous intent. And I think if you compare a movie like this to something like um, Hagazusa, similarly, very bare-bones narrative, not much dialogue, lots of visual storytelling, so on and so forth. I think the difference is that while Eraserhead is very slow and quiet and weird and not particularly explicit the intent is so clear in everything that even if you don't know the answer that there is there is something that you can read into it somewhere whereas, out there
0: there is an answer
1: r- whereas with like Hagazusa, or there are I many felt, answers i felt so much of it is like there's no intent to this beyond that looks really cool well and i think a
2: big other thing about it is there's a through line Yeah. You know, a through line of these themes consistently through the film. Yeah. You know, whether it's looking at the events of the film subjectively through Henry's lens and or, I should say, because it's very much both, you know, the anxieties of becoming a father and having a new child, those are through lines throughout the entire film. It doesn't stray at all, pretty much, from those ideas, uh, where Hagazusa
0: is all over the place with, you know, its ideas. I have a great metaphor for this, I think, that'll really help bring that up Go for it. Eraserhead is like a Lego set, uh, and how it does it successfully, right? It's one of those, like, bin Lego sets, you know, that is just, like, a bunch of cool pieces, and it's castle-themed. I'll plonk that down in front of you and say, hey, build a castle with these pieces. And you can sit down and you've got all the pieces you need. There's little horses, there's fucking matriculations and other cool castle-y bits and flags and stuff you can stick on it. And you can build a castle out of it and say, cool, I did this, like, you gave me these pieces and I built something out of it. And then I can plonk that same Lego set in front of you, T's, and you'll also build a castle but a little different, right? You have the pieces you sure. need to build something. You have the themes and the elements, but you can shuffle them around. You can put they the, have multiple meanings. You can put the together
1: in different ways. Right, yeah. exactly.
0: Whereas, like, something like, say, Hagasusa, like, one of the key problems being, like, with that film is that some of the themes never are fully tied together. Like, especially with the direct ending, which isn't open-ended. Like, that I feel like I'm being given, like, a bundle of sticks to play with. Now... I can still have a lot of fun with a bundle of sticks. I still like that movie. But well, I'm the old man who's yeah. like, when I was a kid, I had a bundle of sticks to play with. And I had fun with it anyway. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm, I'm that old man. But I, I, I still think it, it it does help bring the point home. It's like you were you, were you playing, like, like one-man fetch as a kid?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Throw a stick <laughs> and then go pick it up. <laughs> I think uh, I think another big part of that, too, is that Eraserhead head has uh, direction. In that same way, while it's very abstract...
0: The direction is castle-themed Right, set. exactly.
1: Yeah. Like, it's, it is it is moving in a direction. There's a lot of room to move out from that, but you're always kind of, like, being carried down a channel, like a river or something. Whereas, like, Hagazusa feels, for a lot of it, it feels quite directionless. Like, it's just kind of ambling in one direction until it then decides to amble in another one, you know? And then it gets to the end, and it's like, okay, I I got here, but why am I supposed to care about how I got here? And with Eraserhead, when you get to the ending, it's like, oh, okay, word, yeah, like, everything was still carrying me in this direction to this point. What I want to talk a little bit about, too, um... And then we can start getting into like production design and sound design, stuff like sure. that. Sure. Yeah, there's lots um, to talk about. But the explicit dream sequence, the titular eraser head, yeah. yes, where um, Henry. Uh, has a dream where uh, his head comes off of his body and falls from the sky and is picked up by a little boy who takes it to a uh, a factory where they uh, dig into his brain and turn his brain into erasers, hence Eraser Head. That, I would say, is... One of the most, at least for me, most open-ended or ambiguous parts of the movie, where I always really enjoy that sequence, but I have a hard time nailing down exactly what it's trying to say. I think I'm curious to hear what you guys what you guys pull from that sequence because I do have something. I, but... I think
0: it actually harps on what you brought up earlier. The only way I can read it. Um... Until I hear some other interpretations, uh, of course, is the only way I can really read it right now is it's him seeking oblivion, seeing his head like or his brain is emptiness, like is 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 seeking heaven. It's seeking that like that that opportunity to check out, to go back on vacation. That's the only thing that I really see it as, uh, and that is how the film ends as well. That's how I would. See I have
1: that. I have a similar read, but I uh, think what do it's you think, really ben?
0: important to think about the
2: context in which it happens. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, with the lady in the radiator when he loses its, his head, correct? Uh, right, and the baby's and, head comes. Yes, up and, out and of the, the baby's the head whole, comes yeah, out, and you know, the lady in the radiator them. before that was shown, you know, destroying these these sperm-like creatures. Yeah. So I, I see it as new fatherhood brings these ideas of legacy, bringing a child to carry sure. on your, your seed and your, your opinions and ideas down generations. And in the destruction of the new spawn, the new seed, whatever, uh, the baby, you know, you see his dr- destruction directly. And not only that, but you see... His brain being taken and turned into erasers, and you know, symbolizing his thoughts and ideas literally being erased with
0: time. As oh, cool. Go ahead. Okay, so when you when you erase your legacy, you erase yourself. Yeah. Um, exactly. I'm very into that. I'm, I'm very into that. And again, once again, what's cool about that is both those things work in conjunction yes. with each other. Yes. Yes. One does not single out the other, which is dope. Um, and,
1: and actually, my reading of that is kind of a synthesis of those two ideas. What it says to me is that his brain being turned into an eraser is that, like, his mind is focused solely on erasing the mistakes of the past, i.e. not fucking wrapping it up before he tapped it up. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? But, like, using his his brain to erase, like, the black marks on his life. His mistakes that are ruining his fucking vacation. You know? <laughs> Um, I I love that whole sequence though. Um, uh, aside from like what it stands for, just like the the two guys in the the factory when the boy comes in, the one guy at the desk oh, just yeah. like keeps hitting the the like bell button. Just once again the repetition, just going on <laughs> and on and on and on, and finally his boss comes out of the back. Just, okay, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> One of my absolute favorite. Moments one of the, in the best movie. lines in the movie. That's what I that's what I love about David Lynch. Like it definitely comes out in other stuff like Twin Peaks and, and shit, but like as weird and dark and like creepy as his shit is, he's got such a sense of humor. Oh yeah. He's got such yeah, a good sense out of Throughout all of this stuff, you know. Mary's dad when he goes to dinner. Her dad is great. He's oh, also man. one of my favorite characters. Yeah, he's a Look champ. at my
0: knees. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, it's so true. Like, and it's it's that, that same idea. The levity allows, you know, allows for the dark to be darker. Yeah. And uh, it, it gives us a moment to breathe and gives us a roller coaster ride with hills on it instead of just a flat roller coaster. Right. Usual fare. Yeah. Uh, mixing it up, good. Comedy with tragedy, good. Like, uh... <laughs> right. Um... You know, I, I, in, I'm a fan of that. And in a I movie, most people are.
1: In a movie like this that is, like, so anxiety-inducing, because I don't know about you guys, but, like, every... No matter how many times I've seen this movie, it always is just, like for the whole thing just making my stomach churn just like I I'm so uncomfortable.
2: Well, yes, I I think we should emphasize this is one of the most atmospheric, immersive movies out there. For you sure. know as abstract as it is, if the the world feels very tactile due to the fantastic sound design and yeah. the fantastic production design, it feels like a very textured textured place yeah it emphasizes that sense of unease and dread so much black and And white is so good for that black and white is excellent for that and i think the other thing that really pushes that to 11 is the baby I think we need to talk about the baby. I, yeah, I was going to say,
1: I, we've spent a lot of time talking about this film thematically and what it means and what it's trying to say. And I think that that is the perfect transition into talking about the more technical aspects of the film being made. David Lynch had his uh, fingers in a lot of pies in this movie. He wore lots of hats, uh, similar to our uh, collective f- uh, friends Seth Ickerman from uh, uh, Blood Machines. David Lynch wrote, directed, produced, and did the production design and the special effects for this movie. Yes, uh, he did everything. Very very small crew. I would have I would have used Clive Barker and uh, Hellraiser. Is a, uh, he, yeah, but he didn't do the special effects. He just wrote and directed. That's true. I'm, you know, uh, I, but uh, like this is a way better example of doing all of those things than Blood Machines because he's actually good at all of them.
0: Or, 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 or uh, the room, or the, or, or the,
1: uh, the evil within, or the evil within. <laughs> yeah. So David Lynch did all of that stuff, and uh, I bring that up because one of my, it's one of my favorite like Hollywood stories. is is that nobody really knows how he made the baby in this movie. He's never told anybody. There are some people say that say that it's like a uh, an embalmed calf corpse, like a baby cow. That's
0: what I thought.
1: But nobody knows for sure and nobody knows how he articulated it either, how he made it move really what it was made out of and after the whole thing was over he took it out to some unknown location and buried it in an unmarked grave <laughs> and they had a and at a rap party they had a wake for it for the no. baby yeah so somewhere out there in this Large country of ours, there are the forty-year-old remains of whatever the baby in a head is made out of. Honestly,
0: I'm I'm surprised that there isn't documentation of it. More just for legal purposes, because of how much it really does look like a baby calf. The the special effects creators on uh, like John Carpenter's The Thing, for instance, were brought to court over the dogs, and they had to prove they had to prove. That uh, they were they were just puppetry and there wa- there weren't many like actual animals. Well,
1: around. I mean, it's you can order like fetal calv- calves and stuff, sure, like, for like scientific purposes, mm-hmm. and those have been preserved in formaldehyde, so it would
0: hardly be illegal if he. Oh was no, alive. an alien used, an- like actual animal parts but, and stuff, um, but uh, yeah, as long as it wasn't alive, because like the articulation's really good it's really good it's it's puppetry though I think we can say well, like, no, it's, it has to be it's for sure puppetry
1: but he didn't even let the cinematographer like look at the footage from when they were like setting up the shots with the baby like they made he made them like turn on the camera and turn around while they got everything set up and running and then like okay you can turn back around and look at it like David Lynch did not tell anybody how he made this baby <laughs> and uh i I love that because uh even fucking forty years later, it's an absolutely wretched prop. It's yeah. disgusting
0: in all the right ways,
1: and it moves
2: so tactilely, yeah, uh, you know, especially the eyes. The eyes have such articulation.
1: The eyes are what bother me the most because they look fucking real. They look like animal eyes. And uh, ooh, it's so slimy and gross. And there's obviously some air circulating through it because like its nose bubbles with like mucus, which is ooh, so gross. I hate the baby in this, uh, in this movie. I, I
2: first saw this movie... When I was like twelve or thirteen, probably. And God damn, it
1: way younger than me. Gave, well, yeah. yeah
2: the the baby gave me nightmares for sure, uh, because of how articulated things like the eyes and you know even some of the minor movements it has. It feels so real. Yeah. Um, I love how it's introduced in the story too. Uh, the mother says. That they don't even know if it's a baby or know? if it's alive,
0: right? Do they well, say? no,
1: it's a. It's she says there's a baby, and then Mary comes up crying and says they don't even know that it's a baby, and uh, and Henry says like, "What? Do you, it hasn't been long enough for for us to have had a baby." It uh, it it fits
2: perfectly into that sense of anxiety with new parenthood because yeah. you know. A lot of parents, I'm sure, when they first have the baby when it's still covered in, you know, gross shit and (laughs) profuse,
1: like, it doesn't look like a baby. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Well, and also just, like, the fear of your child being born with, like, some kind of physical deformity. deformity. Apparently, um, David Lynch's daughter was born three years before they made this movie, and apparently, like, when she was born, she was born with really bad club feet that required a lot of uh surgical operations to like make it so she could walk normally as a child um so i i'm sure that some of that uh bled into uh the making of this movie Good lord
0: right what you know man oh my god yeah that's terrifying
1: and like the the baby's man. cry is is like so grating like infants crying is already like we're instinctually tuned to like find it displeasing so so we like try to make babies stop crying like that's but this is just like it's so pathetic but also just like repulsive and i love too that like before later on like before he kills it like it laughs at him yeah yeah like it's 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 he's being mocked by his own his own baby it's it it snickers at him you know when he comes back into the room
0: yeah there are there are accounts of people being tortured via the the use of like repeated sounds um like such as baby cr- babies crying or like like the same song over and over again and stuff like that like placed in confinement and one of the the auditory hallucinations that comes out of using like The sounds of, like, crying babies, like, nonstop to to torture someone is you start to hear voices. Like, you start to hear it, like, saying things, like, at you and stuff. I think that comes through so well in that laughter there. Like, it's that same idea of, like, just you, you developing this auditory hallucination over, like, this, like, repeated torture of, you know, hearing this thing cry.
1: Well, the baby continually, like, manifests his fears, too. Like, the baby has been, like, crying all night, so he goes to, like, take its temperature to see if it's sick, and that's why it keeps crying. And he takes his temperature, and it seems fine, and he turns away and turns back to it, and all of a sudden it's covered in, like, pox and boils, and it's, like, labored. And he's just like, oh, you are sick. It's like he thought it was sick, and it all of a sudden manifests Itself being sick, right? And I it,
0: like, and, it, that that uh, that idea of like your perception of things, like uh, and hyperbolizing that stuff, like comes through there so well. Once again, with that that same theme I brought up earlier.
1: Yeah, we should also mention when he goes to to cut away the baby's bandages and reveal what's underneath all of that, and it's just loose guts, which is really fucking gross. Obviously, like real animal guts and he just stabs it with the scissors and it just starts bubbling over with so much creamed corn. <laughs> just corn on corn on corn,
0: baby. Uh, that... Corn baby. Yeah, that whole sequence is, is so wretched. Just unbelievably...
1: It's drawn out, disgusting too. Disgusting
0: and horrifying. Because it
1: takes him a long time to, like, cut all the bandages off and like as soon as he starts cutting the baby starts like seizing and gasping and
0: what's so great about it is it ties in perfectly with the tiny chicken carving yeah exactly at the table like those scenes mirror each other and that first off he said he got the chickens like they're man-made they're man-made yeah that's what he said which (laughs) makes no sense He asks him to carve into them. So we have Henry sitting down, like, with a knife and this tiny baby bird, right, like, cutting it open, Um, you know, pre-cooked. But before he can even cut into it, it starts leaking out, right, like, assumedly, like, filling or blood. And the mother starts having what can really only be described as an orgasm. And that idea of killing for release... Yeah, yeah. Like comes into play, like eating to survive. You know, almost having to kill this creature because, like, it's like it's in such pain is horrifying and and very cool because once again, it's that same idea of like checking out, finding heaven, that release, having an orgasm. Like those are all similar things, and it they all play into each other. So I, I like how that scene mirrors the ending.
1: It's gross too. It's extremely real, it's real mm-hmm. nasty i also like the the giant baby head that they built that sort of like moves around his room like with the strobing of the lights like after he's punctured the baby the, the giant yeah, head one apparently he and jack nance built that in uh, his backyard together Whoa. which is uh, pretty cool oh while we're on the subject of production design jack nance has like the best hair in this movie wow iconic iconic haircut, which
0: truly which
1: is basically the haircut that david lynch has been rocking for his entire life so i don't know <laughs> if that's like kind of a self-insert um, but apparently, because it took them five years to make this movie because they kept running out of money and the production kept being halted for various reasons, and Jack Nance kept that haircut for five years. Whoa. He never cut Dedication. it. Kept it for the entirety of production. So he's just walking around L.A. with that hairdo, just like when no he wasn't on set.
0: That's
1: so cool. That's, yeah. That's crazy. Apparently, also, uh, I was reading that Lynch... Uh, for about a year, slept on the set of, of uh, Henry's Room. Oh,
0: just to get a feel for that.
1: Yikes. Well, just because he didn't have another place like, to sleep. sleep. Like, oh. he, he was putting all of his money into making this movie, so to cut costs, he just slept on set yeah. in, in fucking uh, Henry's Room with all the loose dirt and pine straw and... Yes that uh that holy uh blanket and i don't know if they kept that baby on set i wonder if that thing had to be refrigerated
0: <laughs> if it was made out of like actual animal parts so spooky yeah we'll, we'll just never know i i just i want to know what like what what actual color some of those fluids are because they're so rich in black and white i love how much of a world of texture you open up when you remove color because it just allows you to really focus on like just like those key shadow elements. Yeah, there. I'm
1: so glad this movie's in black and white. I can't imagine it in color. No, I, I don't know what it would what it would be like.
0: Not as good.
2: I would I would argue that you have an analog in color from David Lynch in Inland Empire, the final movie he's made, yeah, so far. The most recent. as of 2020, oh. and that came out in like 2006. So. Yeah. Um, Obviously not counting Twin Peaks. Yeah. Because that's a TV show. It's interesting seeing him kind of start and end his film career with two of his most experimental works.
1: Yeah, Inland Empire is definitely that. Very, very different from Eraserhead. Way, way longer.
2: Well, (laughs) they're almost foils in some way. You know, while they have the through line of being extremely experimental. You know, one is in color, one is in black and white, one is shot on film, one is shot very digitally, one is very tightly paced, the other is sprawling and full of sidetracks and yeah. uh, dividing pathways. And I would definitely recommend everyone to explore David Lynch's whole filmography.
0: I'm excited uh, to after this. Uh, well... Careful when you say whole. We we're also because the other David Lynch films that I have seen prior to this one was uh, Dune.
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't need to. I, I you can do without exploring Uh That, that one's one. directed by Alan Smithy. That's right. Not uh, uh, you can
0: Dune without that one uh, if you know what I mean. Uh, and isn't there another? There's something else that I've I have seen of his. The I Elephant think. Man. The Elephant Man, which is great. His, that was his film after
1: this. It was actually this film that got him that gig. Mel Brooks, who produced The Elephant Man. Of all people. Right. Saw Eraserhead and, uh, and offered the job to David Lynch. Awesome. And uh, I sure am glad he did because The Elephant Man is awesome.
0: Yeah, that's a
2: masterpiece. If I remember correctly, I remember hearing an anecdote about how Stanley Kubrick showed Eraser head on the set of The Shining? Yeah. Which is
1: interesting. He wanted the whole cast and crew to get in the right headspace for shooting a horror film.
0: The right eraser headspace, exactly. The right eraser
1: headspace. He want. He thought that that eraser head was like a perfect example of like oppressive, atmospheric horror, which is what he was trying to go for in The Shining. So it was part of uh, his required viewing for everybody who worked on that. Which is interesting because I don't think. I would have drawn I don't think I would have drawn that parallel without knowing that anecdote but I can see the influence I think at least in terms of like the use of sound and the use of atmosphere in The Shining absolutely do we want to talk a little bit about the sound design in Eraserhead because it's like such an enormous part of the movie
2: absolutely well it's uh, you know it's very much drone and industrial Uh, Very much uh, brimming with the sound collage,
1: lots of metal clanking and whatnot. Well, I think it's interesting because there's not a ton of dialogue in this movie, but it's never silent. Like there's always something. And I think that same attention to detail is with the rest of the production design is like really there in Eraserhead. Um the Foley is is incredible. Uh, I think of the the part where they first bring the baby home and, he's, uh, and his girlfriend is, like, taking up all of the space in the bed and, like, sort of, like, thrashing around in her sleep and making these really gross, obnoxious sounds with her mouth while she's sleeping. Like
0: clicking her teeth. Yeah,
1: like clicking and grinding her teeth and, like, smacking and, like, shoving him up against, like, the edge of the bed the sound of the the lady in the radiator stepping on those the little spermy things so gross i love the sound design in this movie you could teach a, i think a whole sound design class using like just eraser head example
2: i really love the choice of music too the the organ and the uh the lady in the radiator song it feels very I don't know fifties.
1: I want to say the organ stuff is all Fats Waller. Yeah, as we saw in the. I did. I actually didn't realize that the last uh, however many times I saw this movie spotted that in the credits. This time
2: it feels like a, a through line in a lot of David Lynch's work. You know, the throwback to earlier times. Whether it's in Blue Velvet, where it's very much a throwback to fifties in a lot of
1: respects. Yes, the. Corruption of the white picket fence narrative. Yeah,
0: keen to see Blue Velvet. Blue Velvet, rolls very high on my up. list. Blue
1: Velvet's great. We'll have to do that for the for the podcast at some point. I love Blue Velvet. Here's a
2: question for you, Tees. Uh, yeah, you've seen a few David Lynch's at this point. David Lynch movies, the, all of the big ones. I yeah. definitely wouldn't point people to this one as an entry point for people who haven't seen David Lynch's stuff just because I think it's a little too esoteric for a lot of audiences. Yeah. Unless you're Cleve, which I think he can handle... Well, no. sometimes
0: he can handle experience. stuff. Elephant Man. Stuff. I, that's the first one I saw, and I think for me and I love that movie and because c- it's it's grounded like it's it's approachable the narrative makes sense and has a powerhouse like cast
1: i assume you're asking what i think would be the best entry point yes. for david lynch i actually disagree about the elephant man i think the elephant man is a great film but I think that it's not indicative of David Lynch's style. No,
0: yeah, so I
1: agree. while while it's a much more digestible film than something like Eraserhead, and a, a fucking masterpiece as far as I'm concerned, like. The Elephant Man is definitely worth watching. I think if you went into David Lynch's filmography with The Elephant Man, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I I can get into this guy, and then you watch something like Eraserhead or Inland Empire after that, you will be shocked, (laughs) I think, by the disparity. I would honestly say the original series of Twin Peaks from the 90s because I think that it is, it has a lot of the grounding of like the kind of soap opera kind of stuff, but a very, very healthy dose of Lynchian dark surrealism.
0: What I'll say for your average viewer is when I was like 18 or 19 or so tried to watch Twin Peaks without knowing what I was supposed to expect or wanted to expect or whatever. I was just told it good. And I sat down and tried to watch it and, uh, you know, my, my taste was very different back then. Uh, that was, uh, I'll, I'll, that was way back in the past, uh, <laughs> fucking dinosaur times or whatever. But, uh, I think, well, I know when I tried to watch it then, I couldn't get through the, the pilot. I couldn't get through the first episode because I, I found the like the, the the wailing to be obnoxious. You're, you're just telling bound. on yourself now. Um, <laughs> but I'm very keen to go back and try again now with my very different perspective. I, I think you can you can probably already see an arc of taste from my first appearances on the podcast, I think, to now. Like, uh, even even in that short of a time, like, y'all have exposed me to so much stuff we're that I doing normally wouldn't have got love, out of my way to watch.
1: We're doing you some learning. And
0: uh damn right. And it's appreciated. And, uh yeah, just so I think coming from that perspective, like, I think the, the secret is just if, if you, you're going to go in for, like, 90s Twin Peaks, stick with it. Um, For sure, uh, I I think I think is the answer, and uh, like like the the payoff is very good. I assume I hope to try it myself at some point, and uh, I hope that it is. But uh,
1: if I had to if I had to say like what feature film of David Lynch has make I would say Blue Blue Velvet. Velvet. yeah, Yeah, I think Blue Velvet in a lot of respects is similar
2: to Twin Peaks in that it yes. you know carries that line between surreal and weird and straightforward and of this world it really rides that line well and i think the through line of the mystery of that film would definitely make it more digestible for common audiences.
1: I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I think Blue Velvet feels like uh, Lynch warming up for Twin Peaks.
2: And I think I think Blue Velvet's a great entry point if you haven't seen any of David Lynch's stuff, because you can see both avenues of his work and you can say, Hey, I like the more normal stuff and yeah. then you can go, you know, watch Stuff like The Elephant Man or The Straight Story. Uh, or you could go, I like all the weird stuff, and you could go watch Eraserhead and uh, Wild at Heart and all of, uh, his other Drive. stuff. Yeah.
1: Oh, man. I love David Lynch. Me um, too. I think that that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Do you want to go ahead and rate Eraserhead? Do you have any other points that you want to touch on first? I think we've we dug into this
0: one pretty deep. Oh, yeah. We, we carved into that chicken. Oh, yeah, we did. J- just to say that I, I love the sex scene. Oh, with the neighbor across the hall. Yeah, like descending into like the weird puddle in the bed was awesome and wretched.
1: Gives a whole new meaning to water bed, am I right?
0: Oh. <laughs> water about it.
1: Uh, uh, I guess I'll start with this one since it was my pick don't need to rehash much of what i said uh this is i think uh required viewing for a lot of reasons but especially if you are a lover of uh abstract surrealist film or honestly even as a horror lover like i think the fingerprints of eraserhead are all over the horror canon um it obviously influenced many many filmmakers Kubrick included uh yeah this is a uh, cut and dry masterpiece uh, I'm gonna give it five out of five yeah
2: this is an easy five out of five for me honestly this would very likely go into my top 10 favorite horror movies of all time uh, I think it's an incredible film David Lynch is one of my favorite directors uh, it's one of the most immersive, atmospheric movies of all time, and the sound design is fucking awesome. Yeah, it's one of a kind. Uh, there's really no other film like
0: it. Ditto. That. Five out of five from me for all those reasons. <laughs>
1: Cool. Well, that's a unanimous five out of five for Eraserhead. It joins the hallowed halls of the Golden Pods. And uh, I think it is a well deserved place.
0: I have a question. Sure. We've done 120 something episodes so far. 100? 100,
1: 110 100.
0: officially, closer to 140. Okay. Yeah. 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 So. Of that many, how many golden pods do we have so far?
2: Uh,
1: under twenty, I mm-hmm. think it's probably nice. like. Uh... Well, I guess we've done 140 episodes, but some of the episodes have multiple films. We've probably done close to 200 films at this point. I oh, would say. I think so. On the show, um, yeah, let, in golden pods, ten maybe. Uh, I have the list. Let me. Yeah, let's instead of conjecture. Yeah. Let's
0: let Ben pull it up. Because yeah, I'd be curious to know because. I think it says something about like our our distinctive tastes.
2: This would be sixteen. Oh, okay. Wow, more than I thought. Yeah. So um, from Poughkeepsie tapes to
1: Eraserhead. Nice. You know, with the whole uh, we run spectrum. Oh, we run the gamut, um, and I'm sure we will add more over time. But yeah, for for close to 200 films that we've reviewed on the show at this point. 16 have been unanimous perfect
0: scores I think that uh yeah it's good those seem seem like the right numbers to me
1: speaking of the right numbers I'm trying to get some numbers in my pocket if you know what I mean so Cleveland who is
0: sponsoring the show this week this week is brought to you by Corn Huffers Chocolate Chicken (laughs) they're tiny (laughs) But careful who you cut them around A
1: guaranteed aphrodisiac Yep (laughs) Cornhoffer's chocolate chickens Alright Well next week we're going to be doing another guest episode Our friend Hannah will be uh, making her sophomore appearance on the show You might remember her from way back when we talked about get out uh back in like 2018 I think uh so Hannah is coming on next week and her choice of film to discuss is the sixth sense
0: I, I was I was trying to think about the Get Out episode, and then I realized that was before my time. That was well before your
1: time. Yeah, that was. I think Ben was even out from that one. I think that was me, Eugene, and Hannah on that. Yeah, had to was, go back and re Right around the time we were moving. Yep. Uh, Damn, time fucking flies. Yeah, that was one of the last episodes we did in Milwaukee, I think. Um, but we're very excited to have Hannah back on the show next time and uh, to talk about yet another Shyamalan classic.
2: <laughs> and <laughs> the, the sixth sense is twists. <laughs> <laughs> Sight, smell, taste, feel. <laughs> and twists.
1: <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, yeah, I'm very excited for that episode. I uh, have haven't seen The Sixth Sense in a long time, so that will be a fun one. So tune back next week to hear us joined by Hannah for The Sixth Sense. And until then, if you like the show, hit the five stars on Apple Podcasts, leave us a nice review, share an episode with a friend, spread the good spooky word of the pod people. You can also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod and at letterboxcom podpeoplepod, where you can find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show, with our average ratings and links to those episodes. And you can check out uh, our list of now sixteen Golden Pods, uh, of which Eraserhead is the latest. So, you want to see what else we thought was perfect film? Go check it out. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DeepStateOzzy.
0: I'm on Twitter at Mr. Sheets, and I'm occasionally tweeting for Light Arc Studio as we work towards putting out the next big chapter of It's Stairs Back. Come check us out. We're on Steam and early access, and if you like the art, uh, or you just like art in general, uh, come and check out my art station. Uh, just search Cleveland Mosier, and uh, it should pop right up. And if you like that, you like that art as well. Hit me up for a commission, baby. I can uh, make some paintings for you.
1: If you're a uh, D&D player or any tabletop role-playing game player, Cleve's been doing a lot of uh, character portrait commissions lately. So if you want to see your role-playing character realized in excellent detail, then uh, I recommend hitting Cleve up. He does does very good character portraits. D&D
0: characters, Pathfinder characters, you name it, your tabletop character or perhaps the character of a book that you're writing or something, you want to see him come to life? Hit me up. That's my job.
2: If you want to see some dirty pictures, oh
0: yeah. If uh, yeah, If you want. If you want your uh, your weird fanfic to just you know become real in front of your eyes, if you want you know that you want to get
1: nasty, that
0: weird Rule Thirty Four that you always wanted to see, uh, uh, hit me up. I, I charge l- lots of extra, but I'm <laughs> I'm a sellout, so go for it anyway.
1: <laughs> All right. Well. That'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Check back with us next week for another exciting review. And until then, just remember, if you want to stay on vacation forever, wrap it the fuck up.